If you have your Bibles, I just invite you to join me and turn to Psalm 91, Psalm 91, as we continue to look into this powerful, encouraging treatise on the believer's shelter as found in God himself, Psalm 91. You can listen as I read. The psalmist writes, He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the destructive pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will take refuge. His truth is a large shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of terrors by night or arrow that flies by day, of pestilence that moves in darkness, or of destruction that devastates at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, for you have made Yahweh my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, and no plague will come near to your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the fierce lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will protect him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in his distress. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life I will satisfy him, and I will show him my salvation. Amazing, amazing words from the psalmist as he has us contemplate protection under the shelter and the shadow of God's wing. It was on January 8, 1956, that Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Yordian were speared to death on a sandbar called Palm Beach in the Curé River, Ecuador. They were trying to reach the indigenous people there for the first time in history with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Elizabeth Elliot memorialized that story in her book, Shadow of the Almighty. And of course, that title comes from verse 1 of what I just read this morning. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. She titled the book in this way because that's the way Jim Elliot was slain. He was in the shadow of the Almighty. It is said that Elizabeth had not forgotten the heartbreaking facts when she chose that title two years after her husband's death. When he was killed, they had been married three years, had a 10-month-old daughter. The title was not a slip, not any more than the death of the five missionaries was a slip, but the world saw it differently. John Piper writes, around the world, the death of these young men was called a tragic nightmare. Elizabeth believed the world was missing something. 
She wrote, the world did not recognize the truth of the second clause of Jim Elliot's credo. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, she called her book Shadow of the Almighty because she was utterly convinced that the refuge of the people of God is not a refuge from suffering or from death, but a refuge from final and ultimate defeat. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, our Lord says, for my sake will save it, Luke 9.24. Why? Because the Lord is almighty. Now that book title is very similar to what this sermon title has been for the last three lessons, because what we have seen even in the words that I have read and the thoughts that we have tried to express is that this is in the shade of the king. In the shade of the king is our title. This is the third time we have looked at this mighty psalm as I read to you the tremendous words out loud. And I hope that this time as we read through it, as we go through it once again, that you may have noticed something very unique that's happening here in the latter part of this wonderful psalm, a part that we didn't get to last week. Within the 16 verses of this psalm, the psalm of protection, protection of God, we've been introduced to two different voices that are speaking to us. Two voices within this psalm have been, at this point, somewhat absorbed in all the details that I've covered and all the powerful assertions, but they're there nevertheless. From the very beginning, there is first a speaker, as you could tell, who's making these declarations of safety and of protection to the reader. That's the voice that begins verse 1, speaking of, He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And then if you're sensitive to the nuances of language, even as I tried to communicate that in the way that I read, you'll realize that another voice is inserted in verse 2, a voice that shifts from speaking about he who abides to I will say. Though I say it in another voice, in truth, it's really the same voice, the same speaker, but he's still speaking, but the voice changes his attention from speaking to his audience about themselves to speaking to his audience about himself. His voice, if you will, speaks with a distinctly different intention without any notice or any explanation. And I say that because he begins by speaking of a he, which is shorthand in the first verse for anyone, anyone who abides in the shelter of the Most High, anyone who abides in the shadow of the Almighty, That's a true statement for anyone that is here to hear this, that's a believer. But then when we read, I will say to Yahweh, we realize that a shift has happened and the narrator has stopped talking directly to us and made a statement about himself. Do you see that? That's that's in the very second verse. In other words, it's as if he is saying, I'm here to address all of you about a very important topic, about the glories of the protection of God in your life. This is my speech to all of you who make him your shelter. But as I'm addressing you, who maybe have not yet made God your fortress, have maybe not yet made God your stronghold, 
I'm going to interject a little exclamation about my own experience making God my fortress, verse 2b, for God is my God, the one that I trust. And then, if you're following me, as the speaker shifts again in verse 3, back to speaking clearly, directly to the audience, us, who are the readers of this great uh, piece of literature given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he then t- is speaking about how God delivers you from the snare. And then again in verse 4, how he will cover you under his wings and you will take refuge. And so he goes on, he goes on to speak uninterrupted, speaking to the reader, to us directly until verse 9. And then in verse 9, there's a shift again in the voices, a shift in the voices, I really should say intentions, if you will. And you notice then in verse 9, he speaks of an affirmation of truth concerning the reader, for you have made Yahweh your dwelling place, But instead of finishing the sentence smoothly, the writer inserts his own voice once again in verse 9. It seems as if he can't even speak of Yahweh's name. He can't even mention who the Almighty is without interrupting his own thought by saying, Yahweh, my refuge. Do you see that? He interrupts himself. I'm speaking to you but I have to exclaim the truth about who he is. So he stops speaking to the audience about their condition and inserts an exclamation of his own condition as if there's this uncontrollable joy, this sense of urgency. He has to erupt in this. He has to explode with gratitude and and joy because like a proud child that can't help but interject their thankfulness as they introduce their parents to, or grandparents, to those that don't know them. They want them to know how special they are to them. So we have two distinct, different voices that have surfaced in this psalm thus far. The first voice is the voice that's telling us, the audience, the story concerning us. The second voice is a voice, the same narrator interrupting the story he's telling to tell us how he feels about the God he is singing of. I hope that's clear to you. There is a lesson here, though, that is given to us for an indirect reason. The psalmist, whether it's Moses, whether it's David, we had this debate before in the messages that were prior to this. You can look those up uh, online if you want to refer to those. He's saying how he feels about God. He's talking about either whether it's Moses or David. He cannot allow himself to stop talking about God. He has to talk about the beauty and wonder of the shadow of protection. He doesn't want to interrupt the joy that he's received. And that's very important because the psalmist is declaring the safety and protection that this doctrine is teaching. It's not enough. It's not enough for the writer to record for us just literally what the experience of all who trust in God is in some kind of impersonal academic way. It's not enough. He wants us to know that he has to erupt and interrupt himself because he's so overcome with joy. But then something very, very different happens. Something very, very different happens in this psalm right in the middle of us hearing this voice that's extolling the privilege of protection of all the evils of this fallen world. Then another voice is offered. Another voice speaks, another voice that is very distinct and different and placed before us, almost as if the psalmist is now recording to us what he heard 
with his own ear on the day that he was told how it would be for him if he found shelter in his life. It's almost like the book of Revelation that we just heard Pastor John preaching of earlier, where the voice of the writer hears in a, from a vision, the voice of the vision, even though it's not directly speaking to the writer, but it's speaking to heavenly hosts. It's as if the angels are being mentioned in verse 11 and are now being granted inside information from their abode about what is this human process of giving the believer protection. When he says in verse, excuse me, 14, when he speaks in verse 14, because he has loved me, therefore I will protect him. I will set him securely on high, verse 14. Something very distinctly different is happening. It's not as if this entire psalm, like the rest of Scripture, hasn't expressed before the voice of heaven. But I want you to know here as we're looking at this, that the psalmist interrupts himself. He interrupts speaking to us and even excluding, exclaiming his own joy for this last voice, which is the voice that ends our lesson, ends our time in this psalm. And it's a voice from the throne of God. It's God himself speaking to us through the psalmist. And it's not as if the entire psalm, like the rest of scriptures, like I said, has, hasn't expressed the voice of God. We hear the voice of God through the scriptures. Every word in the Bible is inspired by God. It's binding. It's authoritative. It's without error. But when the Spirit of God decides to allow the voice of Yahweh to be heard in direct, intentional ways, then we know something very special is about to be said. Something very, very special. And what is going to be expressed is the last proclamation of truth in this great psalm, the last teaching from this wonderful psalm that God himself decides to speak so as if it were to put a seal on all that he's expressed thus far. Here we have, if you're taking notes, the fourth and final aspect of God's protection that should guide all believers during times of spiritual warfare. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But before we do that, let me give you a little bit of review for those of you that are new. Again, I encourage you to go back and get the remainder, the first two lessons of these, uh, this wonderful psalm. And I say that because this psalm is going to establish for you that in many, many ways, it's addressing what we know as the believer's spiritual war, the believer's spiritual warfare. It's, it's in a war setting that the psalmist is preparing us to think. You probably picked that up, obviously, as I was going through it, because as he says of terrors of night, and he talks about thousands on your side and 10,000 falling. There is this image given to us, of course, of a battlefield, of a war. We know we're in a war. We know that the war is in our culture. He doesn't have to explain that. The war, war is in our workplace, in our home. The war is within our hearts. It's a war because the battle that he's speaking about is not just enemies in flesh and blood, as Paul tells us in Corinthians. It's a battle for our minds. It's a battle for ideologies. 
It's a battle with divinely forged weapons to combat it with. It's a war because it includes the possibility of suffering in the flesh for the will of God, even when the world is telling you to sin. It's a war because there's going to be hardship. There's going to be tears and conflict and tyranny and betrayal and sabotage almost at every single level. So Psalm 91 lays before us some very essential strategies, ways to think about uniquely designed thoughts and aspects for the believer to consider to prepare them for this war. And that being said, how are we to apply this psalm in the myriad of different conflicting ideas that it might have? Because if you're not a student of this psalm, as you might be now after hearing three lessons on it, you know that this psalm has been rank with misinterpretation for centuries. From the very earliest association, Psalm 91 has been quoted in relationship with Jewish exorcisms in ancient Israel. Uh, It's been called to be sung over the possessed. You were to sing Psalm 91. Rabbinic text said it's a song for the possessed. That's the title of the song. Throughout much Christian history, the psalm remained uh, with an element of exorcism, spiritual warfare, and by extension, healing, much to that because, as we're going to see, as we've seen already, that it is the psalm that Satan quoted to Jesus Christ as he was being tempted. So some would say it's the most quoted and misquoted text in the Bible, and that's probably true now more than ever because of the pandemic that we came out of, COVID and all of that, people coming to this psalm to find kind of divine protection. So whether you understand Psalm 91 as a soldier's psalm, which many people have titled, or a survivor's psalm, or spiritual war, Psalm 91 has a core message that we've been trying to unfold and today should be the last message that we have in this. And so quickly, I'm going to skip through uh, the opening uh, few aspects of this to get to the end, because I think it's very important. But I do want to kind of set the stage for those of you that don't know. So first, we're looking at four perspectives, four perspectives on divine protection, four ways that you can look about divine protection through this psalm that are helpful. And I'll just say first, uh, we'll go through them one at a time without me even stating them because it just takes a lot of time to write these down. But the first aspect I want you to note is, number one, the promise of protection here should secure the believer. I'm going to give you aspects like, again, the promise of protection offered here in verses one through four should make the believer secure. When you read this, when you apply this, it should make you secure. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, here's that interruption, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And now he goes back to the audience. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the destructive pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will take refuge. His truth is a large shield and bulwark, again, having this metaphor of war. So from the very beginning, what we see here, the psalmist boldly makes this promise of protection. And he says in verse 1, that's going to set the stage for everything we're going to see later on in this psalm. The one who abides, the one who, as verse 1b translates, means spends the night, 
is in close proximity with the Most High God who spends the shadow time with his God, not in terms of darkness in a negative sense, but in terms of protection. The one who spends the night in the hiding place of God, who is above every God, is not only in his abode, the Lord God's abode, not only is he close to the Almighty who is powerful in protecting him and keeping him nestled close to his breast, Not only is that just a promise of staying in his fortress as if this was a physical fortress like we heard Phil Webb sing of even today, a mighty fortress is our God. But also he says that this promise is a promise of shelter spiritually being close to a creator of the universe in his glory. So we have from the very beginning this this wonderful promise of protection to those who find themselves in the, in the shadow, the shade of God, so close to him, so clinging to him for protection, that he casts his protection over us, even using the imagery of, of a large bird, of a large animal with pinions. It's as, if he, it's as if he's saying, the promise of protection I just told you should produce in you security. You're so close. You're in the shadow of the Almighty. Don't you feel safe? Don't you feel secure? Because He is the true God. And when the brokenness of this world attempts to kind of break you, and when disease and doubt and discord and all the myriad of different things that happen to us, our own lust, our own desires for things that we don't have, our own desires for that which God has not purposed for us to have, and it rocks your world and casts doubt into this battle because you feel like you're alone, the author says, no, the most powerful promise is if you, if I abide in the shadow of the Almighty, then we will have security in our soul. Security in the soul in this spiritual war that we find ourselves living in. And the psalmist does this by picturing trust. Just quickly, verse 4, he says he's going to cover you with his pinions. That God is this creature. God is seen as being massive with wings and large enough to encompass his creation. We know that's not unusual. The, the, the authors of scriptures use that. They've seen, obviously, beautiful bald eagles and, and, and birds that have done that with their nests, and they see the way that they have protected their young, and they think, that's like God. And God has used that as a metaphor. We also think that maybe that's from the cherubim who actually covered the Ark of the Covenant and seeing the wings cover that wonderful Ark made people think, oh, that's to be in his protection. That's to be covered by God. The writer goes on to say, it's not just that, but there's another aspect I want you to see, another aspect of God's protection. Not only does or you should feel secure in this promise of his protection, but number two, the prediction, to predict that protection should stir the believer. So not only should it make you be secure, but it should also stir you. And we're going to see that in verses 5 through 10. He says, you will not be afraid of terror by night or arrow that flies by day. Doesn't that stir your soul? Of pestilence that moves in darkness or of destruction that devastates at noon. You're not going to be afraid. 
A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 your right side, but it will not approach you. Let that stir you. You will only look on with your eyes as you see the recompense of the wicked who deserve it. Why? Because you, with reasons we will talk about later, have made Yahweh your most high refuge and no evil will befall you. No plague will come near your tent. It's as if you're on a battlefield, but you sense in your souls of the close of your relationship with the Almighty, that you are fine and that stirs you to calmness and steadfastness and peace. And then right after that, the psalmist promises protection here and he predicts what that protection is going to look like. And he says it in such a unique way. It's going to give you greater assurance because here in this little description, as we came to the next section here, when we're talking about the terror of day and the the arrows that fly by night and the pestilence that moves in darkness, we now move to a battlefield and a battlefield that's not literal, but portrayed to us as literal so we can understand exactly the depth of what he's speaking of. And he says, even then, you're not going to be afraid, verse 5, steadfast and composed, verse 8, because you know that he is your dwelling place. So the language is both metaphorical and it's designed to use literal language to kind of encompass a range of other kinds of possibilities of whatever might happen to you in your life as a believer On one hand, it could be physical, it could be true, it could be something that you're in your flesh dealing with, or it could be just spiritual and the the demonic, it could be malignant spirits, it could be all kinds of ills that beseech you. But the text says either way, whether it's sinister powers of the supernatural world or just the regular slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, to quote Hamlet, it certainly suggests that this battle scene is belonging to the Lord. So what kind of protection are we talking about here? A protection that stirs the heart, a protection that moves the soul and calms the fears away. And and for the fear of God, listen, the fear of God evaporates the fear of man. If you have the fear of God, it overwhelms and, and protects you from the fear of man. I say that there's, there's even at this moment right now, there are 12 East Tennesseans missionaries who are being held in a church inside the walls of the old city in Jerusalem. Just a day yesterday after Hamas fighters launched a surprisingly deadly attack. And so the Associated Press said, yes, there's 900 dead, there's thousands wounded, and yet it's said with these missionaries that they are in the realm of disarray, but we are not afraid. We are not afraid. Why? Because their hearts are stirred by the protective power of the knowledge of being in the shadow of the Most High. There's a third aspect, and we're moving toward our last aspect of this wonderful psalm. The third aspect is not only should the promise of protection secure the believer and the prediction of protection stir the believer, but third, the provision of protection should strengthen the believer. Because you know this is going to be provided for you, it should strengthen you in the inner person. And we see this in verses 11 through 13. For he, God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
You will tread upon the fierce lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample down. Now, I said this last time, and I'm sure it's obviously ringing a bell for those who have never even heard this. Those, those sound familiar to you. Those verses sound familiar because you're connecting it back to the New Testament, back to the temptation scene with the Lord Jesus Christ and Satan. And might I add, these verses of Scripture are the only verses, if you go back to Matthew 4 or Luke 4, that are quoted by Satan in all of Scripture. He might have used more. He might know the Bible better than anyone but God. But the only time he ever references the Bible is in Matthew 4, Luke 4, during the temptation of our Lord. How, you might ask yourself, and we're moving rather briskly here, can Satan tempt Jesus with Scripture? How is that possible? Well, because Psalm 91 in and of itself is not a temptation, but he misuses the Scripture, and he misinterprets that to be a temptation. You can go, because of time, and read later Matthew 4, 1 through 10, where Satan takes him to a high place, and he tells him if he jumps off this high place, then he will give him everything. And Satan misinterprets it to refer to not only just Jesus himself, but he misuses it as if the psalm is a get-out-of-jail-free card, as many people have used this, sticking it in their helmets, putting it in their motorcycle jacket to protect them from all kind of evils as they go about their business. This is not a get-out-of-trouble-free card where if Jesus jumped off, angels swoop down because the Bible says so and free him from some kind of disastrous end. Jesus just looks at him who not only knows scripture better than anyone, but wrote it. He's the one that looks at him and says, you, you, just, you just don't get it. That's not what Psalm 91 is saying. It doesn't say that in the Bible. I'm paraphrasing. But it's, 91 is not a promise that if I dive headlong out into this concrete, that the angels are, that are at my command will swoop down to save me. Satan, you've interpreted those words, as so many have in history because of that, as an invitation to test God. But your eisegesis, which for those of you that are Bible students, exegesis means bringing the meaning out of Scripture. Eisegesis means putting meaning into Scripture that shouldn't be there. Your eisegesis is thwarted, and you have, the text means something that, you, that it doesn't mean. I will care. The Lord will care for all those who love Him, but He's not instructing them to put themselves into harm's way to prove it. And so... Psalm 91 is a history of misinterpretation, starting with Satan himself. Even the portion with lions and serpents, which many people say, see, that's the lion is, is Satan himself walking to and fro on the earth. The book of Job, 1 Peter 5. Uh, the serpent is, of course, referring to Satan as the serpent in the Garden of Eden. But what he's really saying is, it's as if those things were even true, as if you will be trampling over. Not literally as people sometimes in the Appalachian Mountains and in certain churches in that area have tried to prove by handling snakes and dying from that, uh, which is tragic misinterpretation. But it's more than that. It is to learn how to use the scriptures well and to learn how to apply them well. Which brings us, in our last five minutes, to the last aspect 
of the protection that should guide the believer during times of spiritual warfare. And that's the last point is the proclamation of protection, which we're going to see, which comes from God himself, should satisfy the believer. The proclamation of protection should satisfy the believer. And we see this in verses 14 through 16. Because, this is God speaking, he, the believer who is in the Most High, has loved me, therefore I will protect him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in his distress. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I think if you read this portion of the psalm, it should strike you. It should strike you what should stand out about what we read just in verse 14 is that God is saying that the one to whom he is answering, the one to whom he is speaking, is the one who loves him, therefore he shall protect them. Verse 14 is so gripping on so many different levels. It's gripping, and just follow me if you can, because there's a change of writing here, not just that, the change of person who's being addressed, but it's gripping because it is God. It is God speaking, and the jaw-dropping truth that God is communicating here, God the Almighty, the true and powerful one, says that because you have loved me, he has loved me, I will protect him. Because you have loved me, I will protect him. That is, to me, a statement that needs explanation. That is a statement that needs me to reason through and follow this reasoning with me. If the believer, as expressed in verse 6 when the Almighty says that, if the believer, uh, excuse me, who is the one who loves him and the fact that you love him, follow me, is because he has granted you love, 1 John. I love because he's granted me the love to be able to love. The reason that I'm going to be rescued is because God's desire to save his children, the children that he has actually granted repentance and faith to, in my mind, defies any sense of normalcy. It's nothing that I've done. It's all because of him. This, this love that he says, this love that God himself grants to the believer is a love that God bestows on the human heart out of his own mercy and love. This love is why he protects his own because you love me. We did not ask for this love to be given to us. We did not, like our new birth, decide to be born to this love. But the Bible says that because God grants us repentance and God grants us grace and God grants us the ability to choose him and to love him with a love that he gave us. With the love that he gave us, we love because he first loved us. This is the love that is the catalyst for his protection of us. Like a mother eagle that's laid her eggs and protected them until they come into the world and then flies to and fro to get food, to drop into the mouth of those little mouths crying. God's saying, My love is like that love because the love that you have, I've given to you. Birth, life, food, shelter, worship. And because of all of that, which you had zero to do with, 
That's the reason I protect you. How does that make sense? Because there is a distinction here that is important. He's not saying, and this is two more minutes. He's not saying that I satisfy the child of mine that comes to my house once a week. He's not saying I satisfy and protect the one who had cried once and snapped his spiritual once I slapped his spiritual bottom at birth to try to wake him up, there's something more here. There's something more than just that immediate, I'm a, I'm a child of God, I'm a believer, I go to church, uh, I'm, I'm in a garage, but maybe I'm not a car. There's more to that. There's something more. Go back to verse 1 as we end our time. He who loves me when I, when I love is the one who abides in me. The one who loves me, this kind of love, is the one who abides in my shelter. There's Hebrew parallelism here. Why do I say this? And I'm, I'm going through this so that I can say this in one last time. Because love here, as expressed in the Hebrew, love as we see uh, in the verse itself, is talking about a verb that means translated, drink deeply. I, I, those who drink deeply of me, those who love me, who drink deeply, figuratively, who enjoy me to the fullest, I will protect. Which means that you may be a believer and you may not be abiding. You might be a believer and you might not be abiding. And so if you're not abiding, these promises don't apply. But if you are abiding, he says, you will call on me, verse 15, and I will answer him in, I will be with him in trouble. He doesn't take us out of trouble. He doesn't take his own son off the cross He saves us, and then He uses us, and then He is with us in the midst of distress. He is in the midst of the greatest trouble we can be in. He doesn't eradicate the problem. He eradicates the fear. And because of that, He says, I will satisfy Him with long life and show Him my salvation. Folks, there's some of us that are not going to have a long life. He's not talking about living to 120. He's not talking about Adam or, or anything like that. The Bible says if you're strong, you live to 80. If, if you're really strong, maybe more than that. But here's what he's saying. I'm going to show him the long life, the quality of life, eventually eternal life, and I'm going to show him my salvation. And that will be the greatest blessing of all. So Psalm 91 comes to us with God saying, this is what I delight in, a man or a woman. This is what I want. This is what I delight in. And these verses rock my heart. Because he's loved me, I will therefore protect him. Help us, Lord, to learn to love you, to learn to abide in your presence and to your shelter and to your wing. Help us to be so close to you in the daily in and out ways that we think of you, the ways we depend upon you, to not be worldly, to not give ourselves over to vice, but to allow ourselves to come to this and say, I want to abide with you. I want to be protected. I want to be not afraid of this world. And I can't get out of this world You didn't even allow that for your son in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying. He says, but your will, not my will be done. And though he he wept and he sweat drips of blood, he still went to the cross because he was still in 
the protection, the most ultimate protection of the Most High as he procured our salvation for us. So if you hear these words, our time is gone, and you, you wonder to yourself, am I this kind of person? Am I one who has loved God? He speaks many times of him loving us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He doesn't speak of even that love. He's saying, if you love me, you can go to John and you can see in John 16 where Jesus speaks of that, where the father loves us because we've loved the son and even us loving the son is love that he's given to us. If you love me, I will protect you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm and for what it unfolds. And Father, we understand now why Elizabeth Elliot would even title that book the way she did after this psalm, because no matter what happened to the ones she loved, no matter what happens to any of us, no matter what the trial or what the severity, we cling to you and we live and we die in the shadow of your wing. And we ask you to give us more love, greater love for you, more obedience, greater closeness, and bless us not because of who we are, but bless us because of who you are. In Christ's name, amen.